you know, financial services is an increasingly fragmented market. Mm-hmm. The UK fintech ecosystem truly mirrors this. Yeah. And most fintech businesses create solutions focused on a really narrow slice of the market, typically one that the larger incumbents have overlooked or just don't see as being profitable due to um, historic um, legacy systems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then what you see is that a lack of connectivity has been a persistent challenge for the sector. And the data sets relating to different financial products each mm-hmm. sit in their own separate wall garden with each environment siloed off from the next. So promoting standardization and data sharing would enable technology providers to more easily engage across the entire financial services industry. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is a prominent Finfluencer known for advocating for underrepresented entrepreneurs in the financial and fintech industries. His career has been marked by breaking barriers and promoting diversity, ensuring that marginalised individuals have opportunities in the financial sector. As a CTO, co-founder and CEO of Financial Startups, he has first an experience in the field and is dedicated to empowering individuals while fostering finance, well-being for those often overlooked. With a strong presence in various media outlets, our guest shares insights from his journey, highlighting the challenges and triumphs of his roles. Through his work, he continues to open doors and champion diversity, leaving a lasting impact on the financial landscape. A truly valuable contribution to this series, but before we get into that, here's a brief message. Hello, my name's Victoria McLagan, and I'm a lawyer for British expats living in Switzerland and the founder of EWPS English Wills and Probate Switzerland. I'm delighted to sponsor this episode of Heads Talk and I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. If you'd like some help with wills or powers of attorney, please feel free to get in touch with me at victoria at ewps.ch or you can follow me on LinkedIn, Victoria McLagan TEP. Fintech Week London is a week-long celebration of London's innovative fintech scene from 10 until the 14th of June. Get your tickets now for our flagship conference on Thursday the 13th of June at the Park Plaza Victoria London. Join us and meet over 1,000 senior decision makers from the leading fintechs, banks, investment firms, regulatory bodies, insurers, and service providers. Get your tickets now on www.fintechweek.london. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering, and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle Schwitter.
Hazechi Britton, the CEO of CFIT, the Centre for Finance, Innovation and Technology, spearheads an industry body supported by the UK Treasury and the City of London. The organisation is dedicated to eliminating obstacles to growth in financial technology, uniting the finest minds nationwide to enhance outcomes for consumers and SMEs. With a career spanning from software developer to co-founder and CTO, S is a seasoned tech entrepreneur who transitioned into the venture capital world before assuming his current role. As a co-founder of Code on Tapped, Ed champions a digital skills accelerator facilitating access to diverse and underrepresented technologies, thus driving innovation. He also holds the distinction of being the former co-founder and founding CTO of Neighbor, a fintech firm recognized for its commitment to financial well-being. His commitment to societal impact extends to his role as a trustee and strategic advisor at Crisis, a leading homeless charity, a homeless nest charity, I should say. Recognised for his contribution, he was honoured with an MBE in the January 2022 New Year's Honours list for his dedication to diversity and young people. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Ez to Head Talk. Delighted to have you here today. It's an absolute pleasure to be here today and thank you for such an incredible introduction. Well, well deserved, well deserved indeed and the listeners will know as we dive deep into this episode. So, so let's start with this, the, the beginnings of CFIT. You know, sort of tell us about the organisation as well as the current um, remit and priorities. Absolutely. So look, CFIT, and as you quite rightly said, Centre for Finance, Innovation and Technology is the delivery body responsible for setting the blueprint for financial innovation in the UK and for really unblocking the barriers to scaling the, the fintech sector. Uh, mm -hmm. We are a public-private partnership born out of the UK government's Khalifa Review of FinTech, and we sit at the intersection of industry, government, regulators, and academia. Um, mm -hmm. And to deliver on our mission of enabling financial innovation, what we do is we bring together coalitions of experts, and each coalition will tackle a very specific challenge. Um, and the first one that we've taken on, our inaugural coalition, has been around open finance, mm -hmm. with a view to actually producing a blueprint for implementation and proofs of concept for industry to build on. Okay, you, uh, you've kind of preempted the, the next question. I was wondering what other organizations and coalitions and collaborations that offer specific services tailored to meet the needs of CFIT? Well, that's, you know, and I, I kind of preempted it, you're right, but I think if you look at the language of the Khalifa Review of UK FinTech, mm -hmm. which was the landmark review of the steps required to maintain the UK's position as a world leader in FinTech innovation, it really noted that its own recommendations were not solely in the gift of government, right? Mm -hmm. You know, public-private collaboration is essential. And in order to do this, it required a new kind of organisation, one that could act as the missing organisational link that could really conduct a coordinated approach to fintech market development. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we work closely with fintech businesses, large financial technology institutions, Mm -hmm. policymakers, rec regulators, academia, and we really aim to foster collaboration between the UK regions. So we're a conduit for this wide range of organisations from across the UK mm -hmm. to really provide better financial outcomes for consumers and SMEs. And that's the critical outcome here, really, is that mm -hmm. this is all about changing the lives of the people in the UK mm -hmm. and the businesses mm -hmm. that they mm -hmm. create. And 
I think the other thing that we look at is that the existing networks of fintech associations yep. are one of our key constituencies. You know, we already had 27 of them across the UK. So some people will ask, you know, why did we need another? Because the, the, the reality is, even prior to the CLIFA review, the regional fintech associations had identified the need for a central convening body to sit above all the others and set out a blueprint for national fintech growth. Mm -hmm. And that's really our job. And that's what makes us different from the fintech, from other fintech organizations. Um, we're not a membership body. We're not here to represent a specific sector. Mm -hmm. We're here to help drive innovation across financial services by leveraging the power of fintech. Right. Okay. I understand the independence. Okay. Um, as mentioned in the introduction, you have extensive and sort of first-hand experience in starting and running fintech organizations, scaling them comes with its sort of its own set of challenges and considerations. So, so enlighten us and perhaps tell us a story. What are the main barriers to growth for fintech startups? What should they observe, ensure, cover, mitigate against? So this, this is a really good question, and there are so many different ways to look at this. And I think there are three key things that I think about that are structural challenges, right? Mm -hmm. So one is market structure. You know, financial services is an increasingly fragmented market. Mm -hmm. The UK fintech ecosystem truly mirrors this. Yeah. And most fintech businesses create solutions focused on a really narrow slice of the market, typically one that the larger incumbents have overlooked or just don't see as being profitable due to um, historic um, legacy systems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then what you see is that a lack of connectivity has been a persistent challenge for the sector. And the data sets relating to different financial products each mm -hmm. sit in their own separable garden with mm -hmm. each environment siloed off from the next. So promoting standardization and data sharing would enable technology providers to more easily engage across the entire financial services industry. Another key one is market size. And this can often sound a bit odd, right? Because, you know, we, we've done so fantastically well in the UK. Yeah. Um, but the growth of the UK fintech sector is actually constrained by the UK being significantly smaller in terms of addressable market than the US. You know, so, for example, companies will frequently launch in the UK, attracted by the benefits of its financial ecosystem, UK standards and English law. However, to actually significantly scale the sector beyond the limits imposed by the domestic market size, really requires an effective export strategy. And historically, the UK has been good at exporting best practice, um, but to create global tech giants, we need to export solutions and technology products mm -hmm. as well as thought yeah. leadership. And then mm -hmm. the third is talent, right? Despite the UK's world-class university sector, demand from both fintech companies and financial institutions for specialist technology talent far exceeds supply. And students often aren't familiar with the career opportunities presented by the UK fintech sector. And mm -hmm. universities frequently have insufficient information on fintech employers' hiring needs to tailor their course programs accordingly. I I, I did a computer science degree, right? Um, and I yeah, can tell you now, I had no idea. Well, yeah. <laughs> right? And I ended up working for an investment bank, but I had no idea what an investment bank um, software engineering um, yeah department required right yeah. so this deficit of specialized talent really squanders on the opportunity to create high-income tech-based employment nationwide 
Um, so, so those would be my three key areas. All right. All right. So, so in terms of the talent, are you talking about as is? Or are you talking about this was five years ago and something's been done now? Are you, is it pretty much still like this? I think this is an ongoing problem. Um, it, it is interesting because in the UK, software engineers tend to gravitate to the finance sector. And that's largely because it's the sector that tends to pay them the best. You know, we don't have the equivalent to Silicon Valley in, in, in the UK. So if you're a software developer in the UK and you want to get paid well, you tend to go to the finance space. So actually, the finance sector is some of the best um, software engineers in the country and therefore in the world, right? Mm. And yet we still have a gap. So you've got to ask, where does that challenge sit? Is it that we're not attracting enough software engineers um, from an international scene or is it that we're not training enough and this is still an issue and i came into the market back in um what's it i started back in 2023 i'm sorry 2023 2003 yeah and mm -hmm. we still have this problem today almost 20 years later well more than 20 years later so this is an ongoing systemic challenge and there's some fantastic initiatives so you've got the fscs you know financial skills commission doing mm. a lot of work in this space um who, and who see if it actually is part of our program so sorry as for interrupting but who do you think should be driving it it sounds like there's bodies doing something but who, what should be the overarching body that actually drives this so you don't sit here in 2043 and say we're still looking into this um, see, I don't know if it's an overarching body. And CFIT, actually, part of our mandate is to support on the skills and talent agenda. It was one of the chapters of the Khalifa Review. You know, the Khalifa yeah. Review identified five key key problems, and one of them was skills and talent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there is a there's a real strong role that industry needs to play in working directly with the various organisations. And it's not just the universities; it's also the coding schools. It's um, the other areas to, mm -hmm. to actually ensure that the talent is coming up and through the ranks from an early enough stage and getting into these organizations. So I feel generally the typical route into fintech is to go um, do computer science GCSE, computer science A-level, computer science degree, join a bank, work there for a while, software engineer, and then join a fintech. Now that's the question is, is that the most effective route to develop fintech talents or not and i'm not sure it is mm. so i think there is a need for um organizations um to actually work far more closely with uh the various educational bodies mm. to help drive that agenda let's let's really recognize as a country that software engineering financial services and fintech innovation is one of our true growth markets right mm. Mm. Um, financial services is responsible for a significant percentage of GDP. I think it's one of the largest, I think it's the single largest contributor to UK GDP. Mm. And of that, fintech innovation is the driving force. Mm. Now, in terms of fintech, the UK is second only behind the US in terms of investment. Yeah. And we're ahead of the next 40 European countries, I believe, right? So for us, fintech is a genuine growth export success story. So it should be part of our core national strategy. And we we need to ensure that the right talent is being trained early enough to mm. get into these organisations. I'm going to sort of try and inject some irony here. Um, can we expedite this by importing talent? 
I think there's a strong argument for that. Um, obviously, I don't want to comment on um, uh, you know the various immigration challenges that we see, yeah. but you know, technology talent is highly mobile and highly international. Yes, it, it just is. And I know this myself. I worked in Switzerland for five years as a software engineer. Mm. I, it was not hard for me to pick up and move to another country and carry on working as a software engineer yeah. because technically, typically you'll find that the language of software engineering is in English. So yeah. it is very straightforward um, yeah. to get software engineers internationally to come in and work on these problems. And mm. whilst the, the context of the problem might change, the actual technical skill set is the same. It's identical. So there, there is definitely a very strong argument for 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 enabling that. Mm. Okay, but I, I still want to stay with um, this question about fintech startups. And you know, my my listeners will not forgive me if I have you on the show and I don't sort of get these kind of insights from you. Um, let's look more at money injection into fintech startups. As, as fintech firms scale, um, what changes occur in their funding and capitalization strategies? Uh, 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 and what challenges do they encounter when, when seeking additional funding rounds? Uh, this is a really great question. And obviously, you know, if we look at the types of funding rounds you see, you have your friends and family, your seed, pre-seed. Yeah, yeah. Then you get to your more institutional-backed rounds once you start getting to your Series A, Series B. And then at Series C, you're starting to look at a mix of debt, equity, mm. potentially bringing in some private equity players as you start to build to IPO, right? Mm. And and that's the general um, scaling up approach. And everyone, everyone says the same thing. You know, my biggest, my, yes, this is all great. Yeah, talent, blah, blah, blah. My number one problem is access to capital. Mm. And that is true. But ultimately, my argument is that access to capital comes once you start to build traction, when you build significant traction in your business and you start to show revenue in your business, you start to attract investors, particularly in the UK. Right? Mm -hmm. That's literally, that's very much what they focus on. Now, revenue and traction comes down to a key metric, which is customer adoption. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately it comes down to procurement. If you are a B2C business, it's all about how are you getting customers to buy your products if you're a b2b business then it's ultimately how are you selling into other businesses and what is your strategy and your approach so mm -hmm. this is where a lot of our our startups struggle with that scale-up journey which is going from having a few key anchor clients or a core base of users to getting to that kind of scale-up volume of, mm -hmm. of um of business and this is where we need to start seeing more support for our UK fintechs, which is big organizations, national, international businesses actually procuring services from our startups. And once you start to see that taking place, you'll then see um, the traction building, you'll see the revenue building, you'll see the international um, opportunity yeah. developing, which is when you'll start to see the big scale up funding coming into UK fintechs. Mm. And, and sticking with that, and I'm sort of tapping into your your venture capital background here, you know, mm. and if you sort of possess any sort of war stories or, or real world examples, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've, sort got of, be so, you've got to be so careful with those. I've got plenty, but, you know, some people might not thank me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, you know, the, the most cutting ones will be excellent. <laughs> but, you know, sort of what's... Uh, what impact does the scaling process have 
on the valuation of fintech companies and, and how and how can they manage investor expectations? They investor expectations. That's the thing, isn't it? How can they manage that? I think it's it's so hard, right? Because you have a scrappy startup that's managed to do fantastically with a very small employee base, right? You know, it's software, so you know they're they're able to scale quite effectively. They've been really impactful at getting word of mouth with their products, whether it's B two C, B two B, and now they're on that scale up journey. The thing is, as soon as you start to scale beyond a few customers and a few a few um, businesses, there's a whole host of things that need to start happening in your business. Risk, compliance, financials, everything starts to be managed. Um, customer success, customer support, these are all things that suddenly mm-hmm. start to come in. So suddenly your run rate goes up significantly, right? And you don't necessarily see that take off in up to, in um in customer adoption at the same rate so your costs suddenly spike and your run rate your your revenues don't keep up mm-hmm. at this point investors start to get a little bit nervous in the UK because they're like okay are you going to be able to grow effectively right at this point and that's when people start to go mm, should we follow on should we double down whereas in the US there is very much an approach which is we need to put money into this so yeah. the business can be successful and once we've done that, once they've built the infrastructure they require, they can then develop um, the customer base they need. And then we mm-hmm. start to see this exponential growth, the hockey mm-hmm. stick, et cetera, et cetera. And then, then we dominate and then we win. And that that story is very difficult in the UK because what you tend to see from UK investors, is they want to see this um, linear growth with actual customer growth and costs coming up <laughs> together. And mm-hmm. actually, ideally, um, revenue increasing at a higher rate than your costs do, mm. which when you're scaling up a SaaS business is actually almost impossible, right? Because with a SaaS business, your payoff doesn't, re- it's really about the lifetime value of the customer as opposed to, you know, how much revenue do you get annually until then mm. um, the value really starts to kick in. Because if you think about it, back in the days when I sold you a license and it cost you £60, I got that money up front. But if I now charge you a couple of pounds a month, it takes a lot longer for me to to recoup that cost. And I'm now having to maintain a negative burn rate until you do. But the ideal is, is that I keep my churn rate low enough that I'm stacking up new customers year by year so that eventually my, my top line revenue is exponential. And then that ceases to be a problem. But that kind of valley of death is really hard to navigate mm. in the UK and yeah. trying to manage investor expectations around that. And again, this comes back to this issue that we talked about, about the UK market size, right? Mm-hmm. UK is what, 66 million people versus over 300 million yeah. in the US. That's, that is a massive difference in terms of um, how easily you can scale and how quickly and how effectively and what does that top line look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why it's so important that we're creating an environment where UK fintechs can actually scale internationally. And this is where work on open finance, APIs, and exporting those API standards becomes absolutely critical. We need a global digital ecosystem that our startups can plug into directly. And mm-hmm. once we have once we have that, we create an environment that's far more effective for our our companies to scale and export internationally. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting in your answer, um, what appeared to me was that 
there's a confidence issue. It could be wrong. There's a confidence issue in terms of the, the investors. Well, I think when you presented an example, you talked about the US investors saying, well, yes, we just need to inject more money into this. Whereas you talk about the US UK investors, they're like, well, actually, this is making us very, very <laughs> nervous. So I'm wondering, is that is that coming across heavily or is it just because of the size, as you mentioned, into 350 million versus 66 million? You're naturally going to be a little bit cautious. What, what, what is the thing here? There, there is just a difference in risk appetite for a start, right? Um, we want a sure thing in the UK, whereas in the US, it's very much we're, we're gambling on this going big, right? Mm. And we recognize that it's a gamble. Um, and that's not for me. I'm not here trying to condone gambling, but that's an important um, aspect to recognize, right? And uh, how do you manage for that? And the size, as I said, absolutely makes causes an issue. Um, I think when you have a, a market the size of the UK, um, it's easy to be just focus on that market because it's big enough to survive in, mm -hmm. but not necessarily big enough to thrive in. Whereas the US is US is used to building massive businesses nationally and then just going and exporting internationally. And they've already got the revenue base to do it. Interestingly, the other end of the spectrum, if you look at some of the smaller European countries, because their markets aren't big enough, they go international from day one. Right. And that's the almost the other way to do it. Whereas in the UK, we're kind of in that, that location zone. where your comfortable zone where you can live and yes. survive and do pretty well yes. just by yes. staying in the UK and actually going international is almost more of a risk right yeah. than anything else so it, it does create a unique set of challenges for for the UK oh, okay that's interesting that's interesting okay um I, I've asked this question a few times in this series so it would be great to get your take on this this is still with VC relationships with fintech. So, as in your interactions with VCs and startups, where do you observe sort of alignment and potential disparities in their perspectives on fintech? Yeah, well, I mean, it, we're kind of building on a number of things that I've already said. So, I mean, in the eyes of many VC investors, the UK fintech industry really remains commonly associated with the Silicon Roundabout and London more widely. Mm -hmm. Yet, you know, there is a thriving fintech ecosystem across the whole of the UK. And this outdated perception really informs investments and staffing decisions and really leads to an inefficient allocation of resources. I think it's really important that we recognize that fintech isn't just about London. Um, it's, around, it's about the various clusters that are allocated across the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and something which many VCs will also will watch closely but inevitably startups are, you know, at least initially less attuned to, this is the issue that I just touched on earlier, is the context of global competition. Um, the UK's global leadership in fintech attracts imitators seeking to emulate its success. The Gleeper Review identified Singapore, Australia, and Canada yes. among the competitive jurisdictions investing heavily in areas such as skills, access to capital, and direct support for fintech companies. And we've seen... Saudi Arabia has just jumped up the charts in terms of fintech because they've gone really hard on this because they recognize um, the importance of this particular space. So emerging fintech hubs create competition for investments and global talent 
and scale up companies. And this could ultimately lead to the detriment of UK startups potential. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, let's quickly touch upon regulations. I think you mentioned it very early in the in the conversation. I just want to ask sort of how do such challenges, regulatory challenges, impact scaling of fintech companies, especially when expanding internationally? You talked about expert strategies. I just wanted to expand on that. So look, UK financial regulators' willingness to embrace and regulate previously unknown technology and set new standards has been a really important contributor to the success of the UK fintech sector to date, right? Um, The FCA's regulatory sandbox was launched in 2016, and it's since been replicated elsewhere by regulators looking to follow the UK's lead in innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, Nonetheless, striking the appropriate balance between consumer safeguards and technological innovation is and continues to be an ongoing process. It requires constant input from industry to avoid new ideas and products being stymied by regulation. So you get to this situation, does innovation need to be regulator-led or industry-led? And I think it needs to be industry-driven with regulator support, which is what we're very much seeing in the UK. Okay, okay, that's good. Um, Right, okay, let's spend some time on your this recent report, sort of shrouded in mystery for me. Um, I don't know the name of it, but I, I do know that you and your team have been working on on it for for some time. So enlighten my listeners and me, what is it? So what we've been working on in this first coalition, so it's been a six month coalition working across industry to really see how open finance could change the lives of consumers and SMEs and making the case for it and putting in place um, those recommendations around how we take, take it forwards, right? That's really what we've been focused on. So our first key finding has been that, you know, a lack of data sharing impacts financial outcomes for consumers and SMEs. And we took a look at credit as a starting point, and we found that decisions are often based on a narrow range of data sets, giving an incomplete picture of credit worthiness. Now, that might sound like common sense and, well, isn't that obvious, but it's, I think you have to, you have to prove this. You have to put it down on paper and show to the world this is actually the case. And that's exactly what we've done with this first coalition and the report that we're putting out. So when you look at that particular fact that, you know, lack of information creates, you know, does, you know, um, well, having more information will create better outcomes for consumers and SMEs. It follows that expanding the number of data sets available to financial institutions can actually improve consumers and SMEs access to finance. But there is a wider universe of available data that can provide better insights into customers' financial behavior if opened up in a shareable format. And we've identified, ranked, and prioritized additional data sets that could be used today, um, where there's a vast quantity of additional financial and non-financial data, that's it, where it is, which is inaccessible or underutilized in more than 30 additional data sets. Um, and ultimately, what we've shown is that, and I won't go into the very specifics, but is that unlocking this data creates a significant positive impact for SMEs who are looking to get access to finance. Um, you know, having access to open finance would have meant that more of those SMEs who today are turned down for credit would have actually been accepted. 
-hmm. And it's also shown that businesses that need access to information or rely on customers to fill in financial data would have seen a significant increase in the number of consumers that they could support if they were able to leverage open finance. Mm -hmm. So massive benefits to both consumers and SMEs through just widening the amount of information that's available and optimizing mm -hmm. the access to that data. Is, but is it, always with consumer protection and consumer consent at mm -hmm. the heart of doing oh, so. Right. Yes, that's important. Um, you, you said that some of the findings, and I'm using your words, I'm paraphrasing you, using your words, you said some of it was obvious. So what were the unexpected findings in, in the report? Well, that's an interesting question. What were the unexpected findings? Um, I I would say... I think we were surprised at just how impactful it was, right? Mm -hmm. I think um, every, every, everyone says it's impactful, but you you can't you can't fix what you can't measure, right? Mm -hmm. And when we were actually able to do this, we we were quite surprised at just how powerful the usage of this information would be. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all about creating more personalized outcomes for individuals and organizations rather than relying on out of date heuristics or um, models that are specific to certain types of businesses that don't apply to the world that we now live in, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, gig economy didn't exist 20 years ago. FinTech mm -hmm. startups didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. So um, being able to leverage information in a way that allows you to take into account um, the new dynamics of today's businesses that has been a real great surprise for us. Mm. So, so what will be delivered as a result of the report and what is the delivery mechanism? So the report itself is really about setting out a blueprint for delivering open finance strategy in the UK. And what we've done is we've developed two proof of concepts that will be um, released to the fintech industry which we hope to see built, well, we want to see built into fully-fledged prototypes and ultimately commercialised. So we we tackled two key key challenges, as I said, one around supporting vulnerable customers mm -hmm. and one around increasing access to finance for SME businesses. And as a coalition, we built two proof concepts um, that will help support in those two cases. Um, and then in the next phase of our work on open finance, which begins following the publication, of the report, we'll be working with both government and industry on unlocking those necessary data sets, scaling these proofs of concepts developed by the coalition, exploring mm -hmm. use cases beyond credit, and looking to build a commercial model that will encourage secure data sharing and putting in place the framework for open finance. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thanks for that. And once um, available, um, I will hopefully get from Ez and his team a link to the report so I can put it into the show notes so viewers can have a look at it if that's okay with you Ez. Okay um, let's end this episode of Heads Talk with this question. Um, as we look forward in, in, the, in the event of reconvening next year to explore emerging trends in, in fintech, uh, um, uh, offer a, a, a predominant topic excluding artificial intelligence that is expected to take center stage. Absolutely. Um, I, I, if I can mention two, um, I think one will be absolutely open finance. I think 
open finance, unlocking data is the next frontier in financial services and financial technology innovation. And the prize on offer for getting this right is enormous. And actually it feeds into um, the AI conversation as well. But really it means more control of your finances, easier access, more affordable credit. And for the fintech sector, it's an opportunity for the UK to set global standards and drive growth worldwide. And the second, which relates very closely to AI, is skills. As we talked about earlier, the gap between the demand for technology skills on financial institutions and the available supply of talent is only growing. And industry and academia need to work more closely together to ensure we can sustain the UK's world-leading position in yeah. fintech. Okay. That's succinct. That's brilliant. Is Britain, MBE, an enjoyable, insightful conversation today on Headstorm. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.